The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thank you, Pastor Blair, and uh, thank you all for letting me join you all this morning. It's a uh, really a privilege and an honor to be able to come up to New Braunfels and open up God's Word with you all. Um, what is happening in New Braunfels and by the faithfulness of guys like Blair that are willing to give up their lives to uproot and upplant their families and go into another city um, with a desire and a heart to fulfill the Great Commission is, um, is truly a blessing to partner with ministers like that, those that are committed to God's Word and um, those that are committed to not just knowing God's Word but following through with the conviction that it brings. So thank you. <clears throat> so who has been disappointed with a gift that they have received at some point in their lives? I know I have many times in my most wicked and sinful states, but typically this disappointment comes from a certain expectation. We have an expectation of either what we want or we have an expectation of what we think we deserve. And this was, was so clear looking back on it um, to, uh, to my 16th birthday. So the, the days leading up to my 16th birthday, my heart was set on not just what I wanted, but what I was certain that I deserved. And as you can imagine, for most 16-year-olds, that's a vehicle. I wanted the freedom, I wanted the joy that I thought would come from that most perfect gift. And needless to say, on the morning of my 16th birthday when my parents revealed their surprise to me that it wasn't a vehicle, I was more than just disappointed in my heart. I acted out in a selfish and sinful way, rejecting the gift that they had given me. And I think that we're going to see, as we, we think about that picture, we're going to see in the text this morning that Jesus, the Davidic Messiah, the King of the universe, the supreme gift to us, reveals himself to those who had been expectantly waiting for him, the Jews, who had been expectantly waiting their whole lives for him, but he does so in an unexpected way. Sadly, we know how this story goes, and because he comes differently than what they had expected, they can't see him for who he is, the rightful king of their lives, and they reject him. For most of my life, those, um, you know, most of y'all don't know me, but for most of my life, I too was looking for a certain savior, one that was who I expected him to be, one that um, was, quite frankly, not the God of the Bible. My Savior was more of an insurance policy to me. He was fire insurance. He was an add-on to my life. He wasn't my prize. He'd help me if I'd get into trouble, but a life of submission to him was way more than I was willing to give up. And so, as we know, this leads to a life of self-focus, self-interest, self-serving, and then being disappointed, and then ultimately rejecting Christ as my true king. 
providentially, he revealed himself to me through, he revealed his true kingship to me through his word, through his church, and through the discipleship of faithful men that were pursuing my life. And some of you this morning are like I was. You identify with God. You like the things of God. You like what he has to offer. And yet you have, you have been unwilling and have not yet submitted to him as your true king. Others, by his grace, have crowned Christ as your king. And yet because of fear or of pride, you are not walking as boldly as you should. Well, my prayer is and has been that this Palm Sunday, we would see Jesus as our rightful king, as he has revealed himself to us despite our own assumptions and preferences. If you would turn with me in chapter 21, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning as I read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and, and, put, on, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the king, of, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Rightly see Jesus as your true king because he is the sovereign orchestrator of salvation. As we look to set this scene here in the passage this morning, we see clearly that Jesus has put together, has been putting together, and is putting together this entire reveal Heretofore in his ministry, Jesus has wanted to keep his divine identity under wraps. But now, as we look at the passage before this, we see that um, as he is, um, as the blind men that, that he has healed say, Son of David, there is no quieting of that claim. And we see Jesus setting this up as he goes to Jerusalem, the capital of, of the, the Jewish world, the cultural center, the political center of God's people, we see that he is setting up his great reveal. We see as he draws near to Jerusalem, so in, in the setting, this is, this is um, the Passover festival. 
So this is a time when all of the Jews, and it would be understood that, that most all male Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so a city of estimated at maybe 30,000 people during this time would swell six times its size to 180,000 or whatever the math is on that. So this, everyone that had been following God, everyone that had been looking for the coming Messiah was to be in this spot as Jesus makes his great reveal during the, during the largest of the three major Jewish festivals, when, G, when Israel was celebrating their redemption from Egypt. As we think about what that might look like, we might think to, um, you know, really the, modern, the most modern day version of this would be um, Muslims' pilgrimage to Mecca. Or we could think even more locally than that, that, you know, 4th of July in Washington, D.C., people would come to this central political this, this um, political center to celebrate and to have a festival of what has happened in the past. You might be mo most familiar with uh, Wurstfest here locally, when every good German's going to come from all around to celebrate their German heritage and sausage. <laughs> so we see Jesus here in the outer limits of Jerusalem. And this would have been really the outermost suburb as a, as a city that's of the size of 30,000 swells to six times its normal size. Its city limits would have expanded. And so here they're on the, they're, they're right at the edge of the city. And this, it's important to note that this is Jesus' first time to Jerusalem during his ministry as well. So he's coming here with a purpose. We know in Matthew, in earlier um, parts of Matthew and Matthew's account, and, and if you would turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 that Jesus has already been warning and foretelling of this. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be crucified. We see in Matthew 16 verse 21 from that time it says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then forward just one chapter in Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. They were coming with a purpose. They were coming to the center to shake things up. It would be like somebody going to, somebody wanting to shake up the political scene in the United States. The place that they would go is Washington, D.C. That's the center of the political atmosphere in the United States. I'm going to stop short of making a heretical reference to Donald Trump as a, uh, 
as a shaker up of things and relating them to Jesus. <laughs> but as we also think about a Galilean going to Jerusalem, he would, th- this would have been like somebody from Kingsbury coming up to New Braunfels to make changes here. There would, there would automatically be from the leaders in New Braunfels kind of a leery-eyed, you know, who is this? Who do you think you are coming into our place to make changes? So similarly, you know, we would expect this in the Jewish capital, that their response to this band of Galileans would be one of leery-eyed wariness of what they might be bringing. We see in verses 2 through 3 that Jesus is overtly and directly orchestrating the plan by instructing his disciples to fulfill certain parts. He's, he's, he's directly telling them, go into the village. If somebody questions you, say the Lord needs this. And I wouldn't over-spiritualize the Lord needs this. We know from other gospel accounts that Jesus had relationships in, ta- in, in the town of Bethany, just, just outside of Bethphage. And so we can believe that Jesus had actually orchestrated this beforehand. He had orchestrated and made plans for this prophecy fulfillment. He was in control the whole time. You know, there's been claims over history that Jesus was a great man that just got caught up in something when he went to Jerusalem. But we see clearly in this text that this was always a part of his plan just as a great orchestrate, uh, just as an orchestra conductor would start and direct and coordinate his musicians, Jesus was the maestro of all salvation, of your individual salvation, commanding every step for each of his people. Consider how you came to trust the Lord as your Savior. Consider what had to happen, what had to be put together so that your eyes would be open to the truth. Over the past 2,000 years, the, the men and women that had passed on God's word and God's truth to other faithful men and women that would have then deposited them with you and that your eyes would have been open so that you can believe. I mean, this is really an encouraging thought and I think one that we should all dwell on. That as we think of Jesus Christ as not just the orchestrator of this redemption story of crucifixion and ultimate resurrection, but we consider and think about Jesus Christ, the God-man orchestrating our individual salvation. So how else can we trust Jesus Christ as our king? We can trust Jesus Christ as our king knowing that he is the prophecy-fulfilling Davidic Messiah. We know this in verses 4 through 7, where Matthew, where Matthew clearly connects the Old Testament messianic prophecy and the visible fu- 